Good morning. How are we today? Good. Okay. Good. Glad to hear that. What did it? Somebody else said something different. Hanging in there. Yeah, that's about right. Okay. Well, um, last week we were in uh, Luke chapter 10. Seth uh, preached on the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. How many of you uh, were here? Okay. So um, here's the thing. Seth's message, um, appreciate his heart to share the, 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 the attitude that we should have, which is that Scripture tells us very clearly that if you do not love your brother, then you don't love God. And that was so powerfully and wonderfully shared last week, and I appreciate that. Um, I did not know that he was going to preach on that passage, and he didn't know that I was going to preach on the next passage, which is Mary and Martha, which follows right after the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, here's the thing. These two stories um, actually are linked, and uh, they're, they're linked in such a way that Jesus was intending to shock and to um, startle, and in some ways, possibly, and this may surprise you, to offend some people when he shared these things, okay? When these things happened, see, we take in the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, we, we read the, the story of Mary and Martha, and we're so familiar with them, and they seem so nice and uh, heartwarming in such a way, like the Good Samaritan. What's so wrong with this guy helping somebody in need? Like, how could that be controversial? How could Mary and Martha uh, in uh, Jesus in their home, how could this be controversial? But the thing was that this, the heroes of these stories are people that nobody suspected or thought would ever be the hero of any story, okay? The Samaritan was a guy who the Jewish people, okay, in that culture would have idealized as a villain, okay? He would have been the person that they would have said, this is the, the exact kind of person that we hate. And so for him to become the hero of the story was shocking to them. They didn't understand how that could possibly be. And then with Mary and Martha, what you have to understand is that um, Mary was included as a disciple, a full-blown disciple of Jesus at his feet, refers to um, this, this uh, stature that you are a pupil, a student, a disciple of a master, and she was included as a full-blown member of Jesus' disciples, not the 12 apostles, but his bigger group of disciples. And in fact, we see in Scripture many times where women are listed among the disciples of Jesus, but that was extraordinarily unusual. That was not normal. In fact, in those days, women were not included in normal religious training. They, they were not uh, intended to be in the same classroom as men when we were talking about spiritual things, okay? And even today, okay, 2,000 plus years later, um, when you go to Jerusalem, you go to the Western Wall, and, and you've seen pictures, and some of you have been there, there's this division, okay, at the Western Wall, where the Western Wall is, is the wall of the temple. It's the, basically the, the foundation wall 
Um, and it, it points to the Holy of Holies. It points to uh, the ancient temple of the Jewish people. And so in this place, it's a very holy place to the Jewish people. Uh, the men have this area where they can go and pray and worship and sing songs and read scriptures. And uh, the women have a separate area. And it's not just that they're separate, but the men's area is, is gigantic. Okay, And then they have this other space underground that's also near to the temple wall uh, where they have a library and they have some lighting and some heating and, and different things so they can come in and pray and worship. And the women have this little area over here where they're kind of subjected to this space where this is where you can be. That was normal. It was normal, not just that they'd be separate, but that they would be considered less. And so when Jesus includes them as equal and scripture tells us over and over that there is no longer male nor female, etc. And what it means to be a disciple is the same for a woman as it is for a man. Then we're like, this, to them, culturally, it didn't make sense. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't track with them. And it, not just that it didn't make sense. It would have been hugely offensive to them. You're, what are you saying? And here's what we're going to see in today's scripture and as we kind of go back and look a little bit at the context of the Good Samaritan is that Christianity has always been countercultural, controversial, and in many contexts, offensive. And as we go along in the 21st century, what we see today is that we're starting I think, to feel and to sense and experience more of the countercultural nature of Christianity when our culture is going further and further, further in the different direction. Would you agree? That, that I feel more now than ever that my faith and my adherence to God's word and my devotion to my Lord is less accepted, more controversial, and really, in some ways, more offensive to the culture around me. And guess what? Not only is that okay, that is what it was always intended to be. It, it was always a weird thing in, in a sense that the culture would go along with Christianity. For a little while it did, but what happened was either um, the culture began to go off to the left or the church began to go off into corruption, into different areas. And we see that as well, where we have in our own day a faith that is solid, that stands on the Word of God, and then we have uh, other expressions of Christianity that do not reflect the real heart of Christianity, which is what we call apostasy, when the church compromises with the culture and looks the same. The church should look different than the culture, and the fact that it does should in some ways be a little bit encouraging, okay? So, um, what we're going to find out, if you're not already clued in, is that today's message might be offensive to everyone. Okay, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, but it does mean that we have to, I don't know, lower our expectations? I, I'm always trying to get you to lower your expectations. Um, but... Uh, Let's get to the Word of God. All right, so here's what it says. Let's stand and read God's Word together. This story, you're so familiar with this. this is, these are people that you've heard of and know, and, 
And uh, this story itself is one that, that you probably don't even need me to read to you. But Luke 10, starting in verse 38, says, Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. This is Bethany, what we understand. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, trying to get her attention, you're anxious, troubled about many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, we pray that your word would have its place in disturbing our, our place, that it would do its work in, in changing our minds. It's always the intention of your Holy Spirit, always the intention of, of your heart for us to not leave us the way that we were, to upset and challenge and change to restore, to renew, to motivate um, and redirect, but not ever to leave us the way that we were. And Father, we pray that today uh, would be a day like that, Lord, where you would get a hold of our hearts, change our minds, redirect our lives, and help us to honor and glorify you the way that you need, desire, planned, intended, um, that you call us to. And help us, Father, to, uh, to be willing to let you do that today. And uh, by your grace, Lord, we know that you will, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. So I want to just take a quick step back to the parable of the Good Samaritan because there are some links and connections here between that story and the occasion of Mary and Martha. And what it does is it, it helps to set the scene for what's going to happen when Jesus is teaching Mary and Martha, okay, uh, and, and the disciples that are gathered in their home. So what happens in the parable of the Good Samaritan is that Jesus um, helps to break through some of the cultural norms and, and uh, the, the basic understandings of even religion to get to a real point that many of them were missing. And here's what I'm going to say, many of us miss today, okay? Seth, like I said last week, he hit on it really well, but I just want to reiterate it really quickly. Um, there is a problem with religion that loves God but does not love people. The Jewish people in Jesus' day were um, infected by this mindset that they could somehow have a relationship with God, and yet, I don't know if I want to use the word hate, but that was embedded in their understanding of anyone that was not like them, who didn't do things the way they did, who didn't do it to the extent that they did, who weren't as religious as them or as devoted to their way of doing it. Anybody that didn't line up, they hated, and they thought that it was good to hate them. And so it was not unusual that the, the priest and the Levite, who you would think these are religious people, they're clergy people, they're ministers, that they would be the first ones to help or the, actually the first ones to deny helping. In order to understand how this all works, you have to go back a little bit to Jesus's golden rule. Anybody remember the golden rule? 
posted on every elementary school wall across the country, right? Because there's nothing offensive about the golden rule. <laughs> exactly. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Nobody has a problem with the golden rule. The golden rule was a reframing of what I'm going to call the silver rule, okay? There was already an ethic that had been taught 500 years before Jesus, which was the silver rule. Don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Anything wrong with that? Absolutely wonderful. Confucius taught it, okay? He said, if you will live by this, you will do others no harm. And he was right. If I would actually apply the silver rule, don't do to other people what you wouldn't want them to do to you, then that would prevent me from ever being the robber in the story of the Good Samaritan. Because I would look at that guy and say, I wouldn't want somebody to rob me, so I'm not going to rob him. I'm not going to beat him up because I wouldn't want to get beat up. But it never will encourage you to do what the Samaritan did. Because the priest and the Levite, how many of you know the difference between a priest and a Levite? I wish I had a witty joke right there. I just don't. The difference between a priest and a Levite, all priests are Levites. Levi is the tribe. The priests are the, the family line of Aaron. So they are specific within the tribe of Levi. But Levites uh, and priests are related. Okay, They all serve the temple. Only priests can offer sacrifices. Only priests can do certain things. But the, that, that's what they're holy people. They're, they're designated as people. And this is why this is connected to the story of Mary and Martha, because their portion was the Lord. I'll come back to that. Anyway, it, the golden rule doesn't... It, it would compel somebody to do what the Samaritan did, but the silver rule would never compel them to do what they did. Okay, so What did they do? They passed by. Here's their thought process. You want to know what it is? This guy who got beat up, deserved to get beat up because God didn't protect him for whatever reason. He was a bad guy. They gave him what he deserved, and now he's unclean, and he's poor, and he's beaten up and broken and bloody. And so whatever he did, he deserved to have done to him. I don't want to participate with him because that would might make me unclean, so I'm going to pass by on the other side and let God take care of him. But I didn't rob him, and I didn't do anything to him, okay? The, the silver rule says, don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. I didn't rob him. I'm not that guy. So they pass by, and then the Samaritan, he has a different understanding. He says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And he says, if I were this guy, this is what they couldn't understand. The, the priest and the Levite could not put themselves in his place, I couldn't grasp the idea that, that somehow that could happen to them. Because that would mean that God let it happen to them, and they're just too holy for that. So the Samaritan says, if this were me, I would want somebody to help me, and so I'm going to help him. That's the golden rule. This is the shift that Jesus begins to put into people's minds, that there's something different about what it means to be a Christian than what it meant to be anything else ever. That there was an intentionality a active, personal pursuit of doing good, not just avoiding doing wrong. So he steps in and he helps him out. So 
the, the moral of that story was, here's a guy, the Samaritan, who understood the basis of the Jewish religion. The, the basis of the Jewish religion was actually to do good, not just to avoid doing wrong. But they were missing that. Christian people today, I think, are caught in the same trap in our own minds that we are very active in trying to avoid doing wrong. Many Christians are, are that way. We don't want to do the wrong thing. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to go to the wrong place. I don't want to be a bad person. I'm just trying to, trying to make it today, right? Just trying to get by. And we're missing the active ethic of actually doing good to other people. And we're existing... I'm sorry if I'm yelling at you, because I'm. this is like very convicting to me, okay? This is my problem, so I'm yelling at myself. It's easy to just try to be good and be left alone and let other people do their thing, and that's their problem, and if God wants to get their attention, then he can get their attention somehow, but I'm just trying to take care of me because, man, I'm such a terrible sinner that I have to work really hard just to not do the wrong thing. Anybody else? But that doesn't work because you get caught up in your own mental problems, and you're stuck in your own shame and your own pursuit of trying to be good, and it doesn't work because you've never grasped at that point the ultimate meaning of what it means to be a Christian, which is to love the very people that God loves because they are made in his image. And so I don't see God, but I do see the people that God made in his image, and I if I'm going to love God, then I have to actually love the people that represent him. And not only do believers represent him in a very unique personal way, because we have Christ in us and the Holy Spirit in us, but every single human being is made in the image of God. And so every single human being is a representation of God. Why do, why do we biblically understand the value of every single human life. It's because of that. They're made in his image. He created them uniquely, specially, with a purpose. He cares for them. He died for them. We know these things theologically, and yet when it comes to daily life, we oftentimes, speaking to myself, neglect to actually act in a way that reflects what we believe. Right? So, how do we change that? All right, Mary and Martha. Now, as they're on their way, they're, he just taught this. Obviously, Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, is connecting these teachings, these events. As they're on their way, they go to Bethany. We know that from the Gospel of John. He entered this village. A woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus, listened to his teaching, I'll get to that in a minute. Martha was distracted with much serving. You've, you've heard this story before, before today? She went up to the Lord and said, Lord, do you not care that my sisters left me serving alone? Tell her to help me. Okay, but the Lord says, and then here's the deal. Okay, here's the issue with this 
back and forth. We as Christians, most of the time, that I've heard somebody preach on this, and maybe I've done it myself, we teach that Martha was basically just as good as Mary and that she just has this busy, active, doing kind of personality. You ever heard this before? And Mary is more contemplative, and she likes to kind of take in things and, and think about things and, and soak it in, right? And they're just different personalities, and so we need Marthas and we need Marys. You ever heard that before? Yeah? You know how unfortunate it is that we would teach that from this passage? Because this is what it says. Martha, Martha, I mean, he says her name twice. Whenever you, you repeat something, it's for emphasis. He's basically saying, Martha, wake up, Martha. We, we, we quote it like this, Martha, Martha. It's, look at what he says to her. You're anxious, troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. He, he never says, you're doing good. Mary has chosen the good portion. It will not be taken from her. I mean, you read it the way that he says it. It's not like, oh, there, there, Martha. Take a load off. <laughs> and here's why I say that. Because if you go back to Luke chapter 8, this has already been prefaced, okay? He says something very specific. You're anxious and concerned about a lot of things. He says in the parable of the sower and the soils, you remember that story? There's different kinds of soil. Um, there's a farmer spreading seeds all over the place. He's like very like uncareful with his seeds. He's just going all over the path, and all over the rocks, and all over the weeds, and, and also in the cultivated rows that he's intending. And so they're just going everywhere. And that's good because it's the, the seed is the word of God, and we should not be holding back from spreading the word of God wherever we go, right? So spread it around. You got people who don't like it? That's okay. Here you go. You get some word. You got some people that are actually against you? Here you go. Here's some word. I'm going to take the word into my school. I'm going to take the word into my workplace. I'm going to take it into every relationship. I'm not going to go anywhere without spreading the word of God around because that's what I'm supposed to do. Doesn't matter what happens to the word there. I'm going to be taking it everywhere. Amen? You're like, oh, I don't know. Okay, but that's what the story is all about. And then Here's the specific teaching that refers to Martha. He says, verse 16, And for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Does that sound like, there, there, Martha, you're just overworked. Or does it sound like, here's how I'm interpreting this. There are people like Martha who are using busyness. Anybody busy? Everybody should raise their hand because everywhere I turn, everyone is telling me how busy they are. Some people like Martha are using busyness to avoid hearing from God. Intentionally. I don't want to hear from God. I want to just stay busy. I'm not going to listen to the Lord. I'm not going to sit and, and let him get a hold of my heart. I'm going to keep myself busy. And so we're always on our phones. We're always 
playing and working and on TV and running kids around and running ourselves around and working hard, trying to make money, trying to spend money, it, all the cares of this world. It's not just people who are inherently kind of anxious. You know what anxiety is? Is me thinking about myself so much that I can't think about anything else. It gets, I know because this is how I can be. I get spun into the cycle of self-reflection. And what, the only thing that can break that is I got to break out of it and I got to focus on the Lord. I got to sit at his feet. I have to be in his presence. I have to let him be God and myself not the center of my universe. But the, the cares of this world, the busyness of this life are this thing that happens not only in most people's lives typically outside the church, but even especially within the church. You ever heard the rule, the 2080 rule within the church? 2080 rule means that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And you say, well, they're just really, those are the, the called people, right? Those are the, the people that really are passionate about serving. There's nobody that passionate about serving, Okay? couple things are happening. One is that some people do not want to be quiet long enough to hear from God, so they're just going to serve and be busy, thinking they're earning their way into the kingdom. If I can just serve enough, then God will be okay with that. That's, that is um, equal to my devotion to the Lord if I serve, right? I'm just going to serve, 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 serve. I never spend a moment in reflection, in the Word of God, in worship. I'm just going to be busy about doing the things of God. And here's what Jesus says. On that day, there were many that come to me, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? In fact, some people are actually going to do miracles. Didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we serve in your name? Didn't we help the poor in your name. Didn't we do all these things in your name? And he's going to say what to them? Do you remember this? Away from me, I never, what? I never knew you. What are you talking about? I did all this stuff for you. You did that stuff for yourself so that you didn't have to come into the presence of the Lord. I don't know about you, but that convicts me because it's easy to be busy for the Lord and not know Him. A couple things. The other thing that's happening is that some people are just stepping into uh, areas of need because nobody else is doing it. They, stuff's got to be done. Do you guys know that? Stuff's got to be done, and somebody's got to do it, and so... There's this huge need, so we're just step in and do it because nobody's... And here's the deal. When you begin to talk about things like this, the reaction for a lot of people is, okay, I'm serving too much. I'm doing too many things. I need to step back. I need to stop serving so much. I need to go and, and be reflective. I need to spend some time with the Lord. I need to be in worship. I need to stop exercising all these you know, activities in my life. And, and that would, for some people, that is true. Some people do need to scale back but not that many. Because remember, 20% are doing 80% of the work. So I'm only talking to 20% of you at that point. 
The other 80%, you, and usually it's 90, it's usually a 10, 10%, 90% rule, are not doing enough. How many of you want to curl your toes back into your shoes so I don't step on them? Here's the deal. Discipleship has been misquoted, misrepresented, misspoken about in a lot of ways. One of the ways is this. Come into the church, soak it in, um, don't do anything, take some time, get to know the Lord. Eventually, perhaps, hopefully, you'll come to a point of salvation. Then spend some time, a few years maybe, kind of growing, learning, spend a little time in Bible study. Don't serve yet. Wait until you know, you're mature and know enough and are, are knowledgeable enough so you don't mess anybody up. People tell me all the time, I don't want to teach because I might say the wrong thing. I, there's no way anybody should ever be up front teaching the Word of God if they think, I might say the wrong thing. You think I might say the wrong thing? How many wrong things? Some people are right now taking account of all the wrong things I've said this morning. <laughs> well, that wasn't quite right. I'm not sure about that. I don't agree with you. I mean, people go home after church every week, sit around the lunch table and talk about all the wrong things that are said. Somebody's disagreeing or agreeing? <laughs> Not everybody does that. Just half of you. Okay. The deal is this. We've, we've made this tier system of, I got to be this mature before, before I can get involved. And that is a false structure. Okay. When should you pray? Now, the, the answer is all the time, okay, but, but should you wait until you're mature enough to pray, or should you do that as a part of your, your ongoing growth as a disciple? Should, when should you open the Bible and read it for yourself? After you've been in church for a few years, and, and I've told you enough of it that you kind of get a grasp, and then open it up, or should you be opening it up on your own all the time anyway? Yeah. When should you worship? You wait until you've made a profession of faith and you've given your life to Jesus and then you come to worship or do you come at any time? And listen, here's what I'm saying is serving is a normal part of what it means to be a disciple and every disciple should be doing it. It's not something that you wait until you know enough or you're mature enough or you're strong enough or whatever. It's, it's part of what it means to be a Christian. I serve. I have a gift. I have an, a talent. I have time. I have an ability. I need to give it back to the Lord as an offering. And then 100% is doing 100%. Now, are there areas of particular leadership, teaching, etc., that sh not everyone can or should do? Yes, okay, the Bible does teach us that. But most things should be done by most people. Okay, let's just say it that way. So Martha is being pretty summarily rebuked. Okay, now let's go to Mary. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, a couple things are happening here. One is that 
She is physically in the presence of Jesus. Now, do you need to physically be in the presence of the Lord? Or, let's say it this way, he's everywhere, so you can not escape him no matter where you go. Do you need to intentionally put yourself in environments where your faith can grow? You're like, I don't know about. The answer is yes, we need to intentionally. So on one hand, it's an attitude aspect. I'm at the feet of Jesus as a disciple, which means that I am learning from him. I'm a student of his. I am an adherent of his. He is my master and my Lord. Okay, so that's an attitude issue, but it's also a position issue, which means that I have to intentionally, personally, physically put myself into environments where I can learn and grow. Okay, so let's talk about the environment issue on three levels. First of all, intentionally putting myself in environments where I can grow in my faith. Church, okay, that's one, that's obvious. Okay, I'm preaching to the choir. Um, daily devotions. This is an environment. You put yourself in a quiet time, a quiet place. Do it whenever you are most engaged. Okay? It might be the morning. It might be the lunchtime. It might be the evening. It might be midnight. It might be 2 a.m. Don't let anyone tell you it has to be first thing in the morning because that's when it's the holiest time or something. Because what happens for some people who are night owls and can't get themselves geared up to read Scripture at 6 o'clock in the morning, they never read Scripture. Because they're like, well, I can't do it first thing in the morning. Or they try to, and they never grasp one thing that they're reading. Do it when you are most alert and awake and aware and ready and receptive, okay? But put yourself in that environment. Spend some time in prayer. This is what I do. You don't have to do it my way. This is what I do. I like to spend some time. I'll read between two and four chapters in the scripture, okay? Um, And I'll read the scripture for 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, just depends. And then I will move into a time of prayer. Some people do it the opposite. I find this for me. When I'm reading scripture, when I'm getting this into my head, I'm beginning to think correctly, getting my mind right. So when I, after that, enter into a time of prayer, my mind is directed in the right direction, okay? Now, some people say, I like to pray and spend some time with the Lord and let Him kind of work in my heart, and then I'm ready for Scripture. That's fine. What doesn't matter? It's not a rule. There's no dogma about how you have to do that, but make sure that you're putting yourself in that environment on a regular basis every day, basis. That's an environment. Um, A small group, some kind of a study where you're with Christian people. That's an environment. Friendships, where you have Christian people that you're surrounding yourself with, that you have a church family that you are engaging with, who are helping you to grow in your faith, that this is part of life. Like, we do life as a church, right? What a shame to not know or not have any connections with the people that you're sitting in the room with for an hour or more on a weekly basis. And that, look, look at how this is. You're all facing this direction. And we have to intentionally 
try to meet with people, talk to people, engage with people, introduce ourselves to people. This, this is not happening naturally in this hour, okay? We have to be intentional about doing that as we leave or as we come and, and as we gather here, okay? But that's an environment. There are many different environments, listening to Christian radio, reading different Christian books and, and things along those lines, going to retreats, doing conferences, that, that kind of stuff. Those are environments. Those are intentional moments that you are trying to hear from the Lord, getting your heart shaped, being convicted, being motivated, whatever. Now, second tier is that you are actually, most of us, moving into environments that are not holy. Anybody work in an unholy environment? Most people, okay, except for us few privileged to work in the church, are moving into environments that are not godly, and you have to, I don't want to say it like, you have to, I'm just saying, if you're going to continue to grow in your faith, there's something that you need to be thinking about. How am I helping to redeem this environment? I'm, I have to be there. I am in, I'm responsible to go into that home, that school, that workplace, that public arena, whatever it is, I'm moving into that area. I, I'm, I'm obligated to it. I have to be there. How do I make sure that I'm a light when I go into that place? And think about that. Intentionally think about it. It's not enough to try to protect yourself from the darkness that you're moving into. You have to think about how can I redeem this place and the people around me that I'm moving into. I God has placed me here. How do I do what God has called me to in that area? Amen? You're like, ooh, that's, that's a lot harder to do than what it sounds. I know that. And the third thing is an environment that you refuse to go into because you cannot redeem it. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to spend time there. I'm not going to put my presence there. I'm not going to spend a moment letting it corrupt my heart, my spirit, because there's nothing about it that can be redeemed. It is evil in and of itself. Are there areas like that? Absolutely. You cannot go into an adult bookstore and redeem it, okay? It should be burned to the ground. Not, not literally, please don't <laughs> go <laughs> burning buildings, okay? But I'm saying that there are places that... As a Christian person, you cannot go into that place. Refuse. There are areas, arenas, there are things that you should not allow into your home because they are corrupting factors that will lead you and the people in your home down the wrong path. Don't let them in there, okay? They're evil. They're wrong, okay? You, you understand what I'm saying. There's, I don't have to spell this all out. Some of you want more detail? Okay. Mary put herself at the feet of Jesus because she was intending something that he says will not be taken away from her, which is that she was going to follow Jesus as Lord and attend to his teachings and apply those things to her life and be changed by them. And he said these things, he says, Mary has chosen the good portion in which will not be taken away from her. Doesn't that sound weird? That's, that's not just the ESV using weird terminology, Okay. The good portion is referring precisely back to something in the Old Testament, which was 
there were 12 tribes of Israel, and they received the promised land. And 11 of those tribes got a portion of the land. One tribe, the tribe of Levi, that's why this kind of points back to the Good Samaritan story. One tribe, the tribe of Levi, their portion was what? The Lord. Okay, That was their portion. All through Scripture, this is how it is called. Terminology was, their portion is the Lord. And we look at that like, man, they kind of got a raw deal. Their portion is the Lord. Well, it stinks to be you, almost. No? All these other people got land. They got the Lord. Now, let me just explain how this is not a raw deal, but the biggest blessing they could have, they couldn't even anticipate it. Here's what it was. Eleven tribes had to tithe. A tithe is 10%. So if 10 tribes tithed, that would be 100%. 11 tribes tithing, that's 110%. They tithe to who? To the Levites. They, the Levites receive the tithe. They have, they have cities, they have places within every tribe, and they receive the tithe from the other 11 tribes. So they're getting 110%. All the other tribes are living on 90%. The tribe of Levi is living on 110%. And on top of that, the tribe of Levi doesn't tithe. Who's more blessed? Your portion is the Lord, which means you are supremely blessed. And so Jesus, he reframes it this way. He says, seek first the kingdom and all these will be added to you. Let me say it this way. When you seek the Lord as your highest goal as your portion, as your promise, as your inheritance, as your joy, the things of this world begin to fall into place in their basic inherent worth. I still need things. I still have to live somewhere. I still have to drive a car. I still have to do all those things, but I know where my hope is, where my peace is, where my joy is, where my promises are, where my redemption is. I know where all that stuff lies and where I'm going and what God's going to do with it. Now, let's turn it around. This is why Martha is rebuked. It's because she's so anxious. She's seeking the things of this world. Now, you don't think, well, she's just busy. No. She's looking for some sense of affirmation. I want people to think I'm doing a good job. I want people to look at my stuff and think I've succeeded. And what happens for a lot of people, this is why the cares of this world choke the word of God is because we're so anxious to try to build up in this world all the things of this world that we're so focused on it that we can't pull our attention away from it to, to the Lord, and it's choking us, and it's killing us, and there's no peace, and there's no joy in it. It's just a constant. That's why it's called a rat race. You don't ever get to the end of it and say, man, I've really accomplished something here. Why do billionaires run for president? Because there's, it wasn't fulfilling. All this money didn't accomplish what I wanted, so I'm looking for the next thing. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's... And we chase the things of the world thinking that they'll fulfill us, and we're more and more and more miserable as a result. And here's what is 
so unfortunate is that Christian people can get caught up in the same thing and do the same stuff and still be chasing the same patterns that we were chasing before we knew Christ and we, we forgot to learn that the Lord is my portion is far better than anything that this world has to offer. Mary got it. Martha is going to get it. John chapter 11 and 12, what happens is Martha says to Mary, the master is calling you. And she's going to receive far more than she ever expected because Jesus says, what do you want me to do? She says, even now, God will give you anything that you ask because her brother had died and Jesus is going to raise him from the dead and her eyes are finally open to the reality that God goes far beyond your expectations. The reality of that setting in is something that we as a church, as a Christian, as a body have to grasp. Amen? God is far more valuable than anything that this world has to offer. I need to keep my eyes on him because when I don't, I get anxious, I get choked, I get fearful, I get angry, and it's not worth it. He's worth it. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you are worth it. Lord, this world does not grasp, but we want to grasp the joy that it is in, <laughs> inherent in knowing you. The, the peace that is ours because of the peace that you give us. It's not a peace that this world gives. You say that over and over. It's a peace that goes beyond that. And yet we walk as peacemakers in this world. Help us, Lord, to do that, to put ourselves in your presence, to let you teach us, to let you guide us, let you change us, and to never hesitate to pray, never hesitate to call upon your, your name, call upon your word, to speak the truth and love to offer grace. Help us to be the ambassadors that you've called us to be. And we'll pray for those who don't yet know that, that they might come to see it clearly, own it personally, and be changed by it radically for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning just to listen to the Lord. If anything that his word has communicated to you this morning is weighing on your heart, then this is the moment where you bring it to the altar and let it solidify, do its work, change what you're going to do from this moment forward. Amen? Let's stand and sing.